0: And this Sunday, uh, no doubt, whatever the Lord has us to preach will speak about the victorious Christ. But tonight I want us to preach on the thought the defeated Christ. Now, you may say, wait a minute, preacher, I thought he was victorious. He was victorious. He is victorious. We are more than conquerors through him. But in Mark chapter number 6, we have an instance when the will of God was thwarted for a group of believers And the desire that Christ had for them was defeated. Now, you'd say, well, I can't imagine anything that the Lord could not do. Well, remember that the Bible says in the book of Psalms, speaking of the nation of Israel, that they had limited the Holy One of Israel. And so there are certain things we can do in our life that limit the Lord's influence and His ability to work and to move. So let's look at Mark chapter number 6 tonight. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And he went out from thence, and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. When the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? What wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could do there, he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Look at verse 5. Let's read that once more. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Let's pray together. Lord, I'd ask that you'd bless your word to our hearts, that you would speak to us, Lord, with that still, small voice in the way that only you are able to. Father, change in us what needs to be changed. Break in us what needs to be broken. Lord, mend that which needs to be mended. But Father, in all things, do it in a way that give you glory. We love you tonight, Lord. We thank you for the cross of Calvary, We ask every bit of this in the name of our magnificent Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm arrested by the phrase in verse number 5 where the Word of God says, and He could there do no mighty work. If you were to read this in Matthew's account, you would find that the Bible says He did no mighty work there. And that's true. He did no mighty work. Uh, Matthew sort of puts a little bit more of an emphasis on their unbelief. But in Mark's account, as the servant of God and servant of man, and that's how Mark presents Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that there are some things that the Lord wanted to do that He could not do. There were some things He wanted to do in these people that He could not do. Some things He wanted to do for these people that He could not do. Some things He wanted to do with these people that He could not do. The scene is pretty familiar before us, and if you've spent any time in church, you've probably heard this preached on and dealt with before, but Christ returns to Nazareth, which is his own country as it's denoted in verse number one. And he goes into the synagogue and he's surrounded by his neighbors. He's surrounded by, uh, no doubt, family acquaintances. He's surrounded by people that have known him since he was just a little boy. He begins to teach in the synagogue, and they ask three questions about him. The first thing they ask is, where did this come from? Where is this wisdom that he has? How did he get such wisdom? And then they ask, how did he do these great and mighty works? And then they ask, is this really the person that we know? And then the Bible gives this sad commentary in verse 3 that they were offended at him. Let me say, there's a danger in familiarity. There is. There's a danger in familiarity. You get used to it. You get used to what God's doing and you grow to not appreciate. It. And uh, when they looked at him, they didn't see the Son of God. They saw the son of Joseph. We know he wasn't the son of Joseph, but in their mind, in, in, in their heart, in their he said, they said, is not this the carpenter? Just like his daddy, he's a carpenter. That's all they would see him. If they could see him for who he truly was, they would have known he wasn't the son of Joseph. Rather, he was the son of God. But sometimes that familiarity can blind us to some things. We get used to each other. We get used to our church. We get used to the pastor, the Sunday school teacher. We get used to our loved ones. We get used to uh, the environment and atmosphere of worship at church. And sometimes we get to the place where we don't appreciate it like we ought to. That's true of me even as a pastor. It's easy sometimes to get familiar with the pulpit, not treat it with the hallowedness that you ought to treat it with when you walk up to it. There's a real danger in getting familiar with things. It's not to say you shouldn't be familiar with them, but it's to say you ought to be vigilant when you are familiar with them as to what that can do to you. You'd be amazed. You hear people say all the time around here, and I agree with this, uh, with our church and the way we worship and the way God moves, I'll say you don't get this everywhere. And that's true. Sometimes it shock you to know how it is in some other places. But we get familiar. We get used to it. I get used to it. And I'm sure you do too. We all struggle with that. And the same thing could be said even about the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we just get used to some things about it. We get used to the fact that He loves us. Now, stop and think about that. If there's ever anything that you ought never get to the place where it just loses its new shine, it ought to be the love of God. The God of all the universe loves you. He cares about you. When nobody else cares about you, He cares about you. When nobody else is interested in what's going on in your life, He's interested in what's going on. In your life, when nobody else can understand, He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That ought to move us. They ought, that ought to motivate us. That ought to change us. But we get used to it. We just assume that. Uh, and, and it's good to know the love of God always will be there. But sometimes it's it's dangerous to go to the place where we don't appreciate. It. I believe we get sometimes familiar with the idea of the Bible. I don't know how many of us are really familiar with the Bible, <laughs> but we get I, I, we get familiar with the idea that we have a Bible. And you'd be amazed what it took for you to have a Bible sitting in front of you. Perfect, inspired, preserved. Everything in it is exactly what's supposed to be in it. There's nothing in it that shouldn't be in there, and there's nothing in it that ought to be there that's missing. It's exactly what it ought to be. That's that's a wonderful, precious thing. But we grow familiar with it. And we take it, and we, we get in the car, and we toss it up into the back window, and there she sits until it's time to go to church, dust it off and bring it out, and present it to the church family to prove you still own one again. Now, that's sad, but I get that way. I'm sure you get that way, too. There is a danger with familiarity. Familiarity sometimes can hinder our faith. Sometimes we get tossed into an environment where we must depend on God. You know, one of the reasons that our faith is so small today is because we live in such a comfortable environment. I'm not saying we ought to sell everything we've got and and go live in a monastery somewhere or some kind of nonsense, but, but, but it is a fact that there's very few of us that really have to depend on God. I mean, most of us, the government wouldn't let us starve if we was about to starve. And we grow to a place where we just don't really have to effectually trust the Lord day in and day out. Oh, we trust Him for some leisurely things, and we trust Him for some, some toys and some, some comforts and some distractions and, and, and some recreational things. But to trust Him for the very sustenance of life is something that most of us have never had to experience and so our faith grows weak. And in the same way, the Bible gives us the root cause of their uh of of Christ's uh, inability to work in their midst was their unbelief. And I won't say a few words tonight and uh, I've already said more than a few words, but I'm going to say just just four thoughts tonight that I want you to notice. I want you to notice first off the will of the savior. The Bible does not say he did not want to do a a a mighty work there. The Bible does not say he had no interest in doing a mighty work there. The Bible does not say he forgot to do a mighty work there. The Bible says, in fact, that he could not do a mighty work in their midst. And that tells me something. He had a desire to do a mighty work in their midst. He wanted to do something great in their presence. And is that any surprise? I mean, I understand that He is is 100% God, but I also understand that He's 100% man. And no doubt, you just like Him, and, and me just like Him, if there's anybody that we want to reach, it's those that we know the closest and the best. Probably those that we hurt the most for are our loved ones and our family members. And no doubt, Christ, just like you or I, He wanted... I mean, if there's anybody He wanted to be able to reach, He wanted to reach those that were in Nazareth. He had a desire to do something because He loved them and He cared about them. He wanted them to see great things happen, things that had happened in other cities, in other towns, in other villages. He wanted to see them happen there. And that was His will for them. I I, I don't know what the will of God is for you in a lot of particulars and details, but I do know this, that it's it's the will of God that God be able to work in you and through you and by you. It's the will of God for your life that He be able to powerfully work in your life and in the lives of others through your life. Over and over again in Scripture, example after example is given of people that were ordinary, people that were insignificant, people whom you would never guess God would or could use, and yet they were the very people that God used to uh, do great and marvelous things. We've started preaching through Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm always impressed when I come to the end of Hebrews chapter 11. And it goes down a laundry list. I mean, the Hebrews writer said, time would fail me to tell you of all these. And he names a few people. And then he quits naming people. And he just starts naming things that people did through faith. How that they uh, wrought righteousness. How they subdued kingdoms. How that women received their dead back to life. How that great and mighty things were done through faith and by faith in their life. And the Hebrew writer then says, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about your mammon Papal. I mean, if you won't believe that, that's fine. But he's saying the same way that they had people watching their lives, we have people watching our lives. So let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our what? Of our faith so that He might do something great in our lives. God wants to work in your life. God wants to see you get victory over sin. God wants to see you have a vibrant and powerful prayer life. Prayer is something that I think we've seen so little of it done, and we've seen so little accomplished by it, because we've seen so little of it done, that we greatly underestimate. God's commentary on prayer is that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much and the examples that he gives concerning that prayer, he speaks of of Elijah. And the power that prayer had in Elijah's life, and Elijah, by the way, was probably the most powerful prophet, at least he was the most impressive one, amen, uh, that we have in all of Scripture. And God tells us that the secret to his life, he was a man of like passions as we are. He had problems, he had failures, he had mistakes in his life, but because he was a man of prayer and a man of faith, God did great things through him. God wants to do great things through you and through me. I'd highly doubt you'll ever call fire from heaven. I'd highly doubt that that you'll ever do many of the things that the Old Testament prophets did. But a far greater miracle can be wrought in your life and in mine. When God takes complete control over us, we can see people come to Christ we can see the church uh, grow and be built and be strengthened. We can see our loved ones grow and flourish in the Word of God. Uh, as husbands, we can lead our home in a righteous way. Uh, as wives, you can raise up your children in, in godly nurturing and, and admonition. You can see generations be raised up to do things for God. All this is wrought, and it's all wrought by faith and nothing else. Faith is the only means to do it. And so we see God wants to do great things in your life and in my life. The problem is not God wanting to do them. The problem is us having faith enough for God to do them. Us trusting God enough. Uh, You know, and and I don't know if I'll be able to share all of it because time would fail just like the Hebrews writer. But isn't it interesting, you know, is, is faith... Now stop and think about this. If miracles were given to... or to provide faith, then why in an atmosphere of unbelief was he unable to do a miracle? Some have said, well, the purpose of miracles was to cause people to have faith in him. Is that true? If that was true, wouldn't you think in the place where there was no belief that a miracle would have been performed? Wouldn't it make sense if if faith was, if if miracles were given to, to birth faith in people's hearts, if that was the reason that they were given, wouldn't you think that in places where no one believed on Him, that'd be the very place for Him to do a miracle? Doesn't it make sense that the deeper the darkness, that would be the very place for the light to shine? And yet that's not the case. The reason is because the purpose of a miracle was not necessarily to provide faith for those that had no faith, but promote faith within those that had already exhibited faith. A miracle was given that they might know something of Christ and what He can do for them and in them. And so, just like the man that prayed, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. If he hadn't believed, I don't know that the Lord would have helped his unbelief. But because he believed with what faith he had, said, Lord, I want to believe more, I want to know you more, the Lord answered and did something in his life. And so, God working in our life is just the same. God doesn't work in our life because we have no faith. He works in our life because we do have faith. Because we've trusted Him. Because we have uh, enabled Him to do things in our life in response to our faith. We have put our trust in him and so he can work and move. We have can, can I put it this way? Some of you know what this is like and I and I just I, you know all my examples anymore have to do with my little boy because that's it's all I do anymore, you know? I mean it's all me and my wife do. We sit around and we stare at him. That's life for us now. And a lot of times, uh, he'll be he'll have something, he'll be playing with something, and I want to show him something with a little toy or something like that. And he'll have that thing in his hand and I'll say, "Let me see it." And he'll look at me, and I can tell he's studying, you know. He, he's trying to get all of the components of the situation in hand before he makes a decision. And I'll say, I'll give it right back. I just want to see it. I want to show you something. And he'll look at me, and finally, he'll lift that toy up and put it in my hand. And I'll take it, and I'll show him something. And then, of course, it's the greatest thing in the world he's ever seen because he's, he's like 16 months old, and, I mean, he ain't been around the world. So it, it's, he's, not, he's not difficult to impress faith is sort of that way. God says, I want to show you some things. But He can't show you some things unless you'll give things over to Him. Unless you'll trust Him. Unless you'll open your heart to Him. Unless you'll surrender to Him. But you'd be amazed if you'd surrender it into His hands what He can do with it. Amen. Hand it right back to you greater than what you ever gave it to Him. So we see His will. He wanted to do some things. But I want you to notice His work that He did. It says He could, do, he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. That tells me this, that the work that they saw Christ doing was nothing compared to the work that Christ was able to do. God did do some things in their midst. There were a few, and I'm glad that even though God does deal with us in a corporate manner, it never entirely overrides the individual manner with which God deals with. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, look what the Bible says about Jews. The Bible says uh, about Jews in Second Corinthians chapter 3 that, that they collectively and corporately as a nation, that the veil is, is over their eyes in the reading of Moses. But then Paul says, nevertheless, it shall be taken away. Not the veils shall be taken away, but the veil singular shall be taken away if they'll turn and believe on Christ. In other words, even though the Jews, uh, by and large, uh, will not turn to Christ until He returns in power and in glory, a Jew can turn to Christ and be gloriously born again. And so God's corporate dealings with us never uh, in any way completely negate God's individual dealings with us. And though as a community, the place of Nazareth would not trust the Lord, they could not see Him for anything other than the carpenter's son, there were a few people that He was able to deal with, a few people that would put their faith in Him, and because of that, He healed them and did a work in their heart and life. Here's the remarkable thing. Now stop and think about this grammar here. He could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk. That tells me this. That tells me that when he did that work, it was a mighty work. Isn't that what it means, save this? He's saying he couldn't do any mighty works except, and then it names a few things. Now, those are mighty works. I don't know about you, but I'm not able to. We see people healed all the time, but it's not because of me. We don't, I don't, if I, listen, if I slap you, it's not because I'm praying for you, it's because somebody needs to pray for me. Amen? I, I, I don't believe in, in none of this faith healer nonsense, and the Bible doesn't teach it anywhere. Uh, if, if there was one genuine faith healer in the entire world that could at His whim and will heal people, He'd be the King of the world. And kings and emperors would come and bow before His feet. But that's not the case because no one. And by the way, there is one that can can heal at his will. And one day kings and emperors will bow at his feet. That's not my message, but I thought that was good, didn't you? But uh, I don't believe in any of that nonsense. But we see people healed all the time in response to prayer. The book of James teaches that. James chapter five, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And it is scriptural to pray for those that are that are sick, and if it's the will of God, He can heal them. That's a remarkable thing. I mean, we could give testimonies about things that God has done that have baffled doctors. I mean, some of you could tell me stories about standing there looking at a doctor, and a doctor looking at you, and you both trying to figure it out. And finally, one of you speaks up and says, well, it must just be God, because nobody else could do it. That's a mighty work. That's remarkable. God could do that. It's a greater remarkable thing when a spiritual... Miracle takes place in our lives, both with the birth of a of a sinner into the family of God through the new birth, being born again by the Spirit of God. That's remarkable. And then also when we have great victories in our lives over sin and unbelief and things of that nature, that's a remarkable thing. God was still able to work in a small way. And here's what I want you to gather. It, no doubt those... People that were healed went home and they told their family and they rejoiced. And they said, oh, who could believe? Look at the mighty, wonderful thing that God has done. But don't you know that Christ must have just shook his head and thought to himself, they're rejoicing over the scraps when there was a whole feast for it. There was a whole feast for them. They're rejoicing over these things and that's wonderful. But no doubt he shook his head in pity and said, I had so much more for them if they just would have trusted me. And I wonder sometimes if God does that with you and I. If we pray and ask God and God moves and God responds to our pitiful faith that we have managed, I mean, you know, you hear enough preaching, you can't help but have a little bit of faith. I mean, that's just a reality, you know. I mean, you hear enough preaching, you can't help but have a little bit of faith. And God responds and we say, oh, how marvelous. I'm satisfied with what God's done. I wonder if God looks down from heaven, shakes his head and says, oh, there's so much more I want to do for you. There's so many more things I'd love to do for you. I, I, I would love to see you with, with, gain so much more victory over sin in your life. I'd love to see your home so much stronger. I'd love to see so many more of your loved ones saved. I'd love to see you with so much more joy and so much more influence for my son in this world. And we say, oh, Lord, you're amazing. And I wonder if he says, I could be so much more amazing for you. If only you'd trust me. He was working. But that working, if they could have seen what was in, what was in the, the stockroom Amen? What was in the storeroom for them, they probably wouldn't have been satisfied. What does the Bible say? That I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. I mean, you've never even laid a thought on the things that God wants to do for you if we'd only put our faith in Him. So we see here His will and we see His working. But I want you to notice His wonder. Look what it says in verse number thirty er, verse number 6. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled. Only two times in the ministry of Christ do we find that he marveled at anything. Two times. Once was when a Gentile centurion came to him and asked him to do a miracle for him. And the Bible says he wondered at his faith. The Bible says he marvelled at his faith and said, "I have not found so great a faith. No, not in Israel." And the other time is here. Once he marvels over great faith, here he marvels over great unbelief. That word "marvel" is interesting, and I'm not—I'm not a Greek scholar. I mean, I'm not—you know—I don't even eat Greek yogurt, you know. But I do know enough about that word "marvel" to understand that what it means is to be rendered speechless. To be rendered speechless. Now, if you're like me, you don't really know what that's like. But uh, here, the Savior literally just looked with wonder at the unbelief that they had. Now, stop and let's just put both those things in juxtaposition. Can we do that? Let's just compare. Let's lay those side by side. Here's a Gentile that's never known anything of God, and yet he has faith. Here are the people of Nazareth, and they know Christ more intimately than anyone, and yet they are riddled with unbelief. Here is a man that doesn't even ask Christ to come into his midst because he feels like he's unworthy. You remember he said that? He said, I'm a man uh, having authority. And he said, I've got people under me and I've got people above me and I know the power of the spoken word. And yet, not even worthy to have him. And the people of Nazareth have Christ in the very midst of them. And Christ's testimony is that I'm without honor. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 4? A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. I mean, isn't it safe to assume that what he's saying is, here I am, I've come home, I'm in the midst, and I am without honor amongst you. Here was a man that was willing to trust the very Word of God to do a great and mighty work. And here are people that refuse to trust the work of God as a testimony To his own words. Look what it says again. Verse number 3. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary. The brother goes on. They're saying he's not who he says he is. Here's a Gentile that says, I'll believe who you say you are. And I know that you can do a miracle. And here's people that are saying, we've seen your miracles, but we still don't believe who you are. If that does nothing, it should make us marvel the way that Christ marveled. At the miraculous influence of both faith and faith. And unbelief. The fact that faith is able to overcome so many things when it takes root in our life. You know what faith is, don't you? Faith is simply trusting the revealed God trusting who God has revealed Himself to be. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. In other words, faith is not just a belief in in any God. Uh, Faith is not a belief in the God that we want Him to be, but the way that God has revealed Himself, the things that He said He would do, and the things that He has shared with us, it's putting our trust and commit into that and, and, and living in light of that truth. And you'd be amazed if you'll put your faith in God. Uh, you'll find over and over and over again, he'll, he'll be proven faithful in your life. And faith grows. Unbelief is the same way, though. Unbelief is an unusual thing because it changes your perception of things, just the way faith does. You may have heard the old adage before, uh, when you hear hoofbeats, you don't think zebra. Have you ever heard that before? Do you know what, what that's telling you? It's telling you that uh, there's an assumption that's reasonable to make. And the funny thing about it with both faith and unbelief is they have a miraculous way. Uh, faith has a way of, of putting trust in ev- seeing God in everything. Everything. Everything that takes place, seeing the hand of God. And unbelief does what it can to, to dislodge and, and, and uproot God from every circumstance and situation of your life. To where you look around and you declare, God is nowhere just like the people of Nazareth did. They looked around and said, I don't see God anywhere. And yet He was right in front of them. He was right in front of them. That's the thing that that marveled the Savior, is that here He was. I mean, standing face to face. Not only did they know His human testimony, but they knew His divine testimony. And here He is right in front of them, doing miracles, performing great things, teaching with wisdom that drips from the heavens. And they say, who is this? And they were offended at Him. By the same token, faith can take a Gentile that's never known God and cause him to look for Him and see Him in a meek carpenter from Nazareth and trust His Word And see God move and work. So we see his wonder. But then finally, I want to say a quick word about his witness. Matthew almost puts this in a more clear manner. I I, I told you that Matthew places an emphasis on their unbelief. And and Mark places sort of an emphasis on Christ's inability to move and work. Uh, But the book of Matthew says explicitly that he could do no miracle there because of their unbelief. And the testimony that Christ gives when He marvels, He says, You are a people of unbelief. You are crippled by your unbelief. Because of this unbelief, I can't move, I can't work. Because you will not trust Me, I cannot do in your midst what I would long and like to do. I wonder how many things God's just waiting for us to trust Him with. Things that we've got, we're gripping white-knuckled to. And we will not let go, and we will not trust God. And and we'd be shocked to know what God could do with it if we'd trust Him with it. You know, you don't have to worry when you give things over to the Lord. If you're human, you will sometimes. I do sometimes. but But I can confidently say this. There's nothing I've ever given to God that I've regretted giving to Him. Nothing. There's nothing that I've given to the Lord, and then He's dropped the ball and made a mistake. There's nothing I've ever committed to the Lord and trusted God with that I've come back later and said that was a poor decision. I should have done it myself. And there is nothing in your life, nothing in your life you can't trust Him with. What do you think it is that God can't handle in your life? This is the God that that stepped out of glory and pulled back the veil of darkness and with his spoken word flung everything out into existence so that the things which appear, which are made, were were made with things which do not appear. And you think he's going to have trouble with your problems? I mean, this is the God that that literally uh, laid his life down, became sin for us, was crucified, bore the sin debt of all humanity and got up on the third day. And you think he can't handle your problems. How silly. Kind of makes you step back and marvel sometimes at our unbelief, doesn't it? That we'd think we can't trust God. And yet we all struggle with it. Every one of us does. There's not a person that doesn't. Preacher, what can I do? Well, you can pray like that dear man did. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Don't wallow in your unbelief. Rather be grounded in your belief. He didn't say, Lord, I don't believe. Help me. He said, Lord, I do believe. I do trust you. But I feel that I could trust you more. So, Lord, help mine unbelief. Stay grounded in your faith and trust. But then ask for the Lord of glory to help you to trust Him more.